Amen. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Oh, Mark warmed you up. That's good. I needed that work done ahead of time so we could get after it. If you're new, my name is Simon. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. For those watching online, we're grateful for you. Shout out to my mom. I love you. And Leanne Bowers. I miss you. So just, you know, people are watching. We know people are watching. And so we want to encourage them. Continue to watch. Continue to grow in God's Word. Now, We've been in the book of Acts. We are two weeks away from hitting our pause button on the book of Acts as we've been walking through it. And then we're going to launch into our Advent series, which, like Mark was saying, we're all very excited about it. Um, Dave did a great job on making the slides and all the background, all the graphics. I think he did a fantastic job. I was just thinking about this particular um, passage in Acts 12. I noticed a few things. One, I've gotten older. All of a sudden... uh, looking at things is hard and apparently they say you'll need glasses and I'm like no maybe I will maybe I won't but as I've grown older there's something I've noticed as I've watched a lot of tv and and read and listened to music all these people that I held in high esteem growing up all these icons the people that you the posters you put on your wall the people that you think are great and are famous and are wonderful something's happening they're dying. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. That means I'm getting old, but it also means some other stuff. And so I said, well, in the last 10 years, who do I know that's like really famous that's died? And I'm going to read through a bunch of dead people. And I, there's a reason. So bear with me. But like Alan Rickman, Carrie Fisher, Robin Williams, Betty White, Chris Cornell, David Bowie, Whitney Houston, Tom Petty, which, by the way, Mark, who was one of our musicians, uh, he didn't even know that Tom Petty had died. I'm like, you say you like Tom Petty and you don't even know that? Come on, man. Stan Lee, Burt Reynolds, Gene Wilder, Queen Elizabeth, Neil Peart, Prince, Roger Moore, Bob Saget, Kobe Bryant. We can just keep going, right? And you're like, why are we talking about this? Well, I'm going to quote Shakespeare because that makes me look smart. And so Shakespeare said this, Golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. What does that mean? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much position and authority you have. It doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter how unknown you are. Everyone is going to die. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at it, and you can think that Walt Disney froze his head and he's going to come back to life at some day, but we all die. That's the reality of it. So the question then looms over all of our head, what's the point of all of this then? If we all are born and we all die, what's the point? Is it to get as much as we can, to make as much money, to accumulate as many possessions and things so we can brag? Is it to make the biggest mark on the world and to have your name carry through the ages? Is it to have the the most experiences that you possibly can, to go as many places and try as many things? Is it to be the most known? Well, I want to tell you this. The Bible actually tells us and answers that question for us, and we can know what it is. So the Westminster Confession summarizes it this way, and just that's not the Bible. That's just a group of individuals that came together and said, hey, we want to answer life's big questions, and we're going to use Scripture to do it. And so this is what they decided. The chief end... Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When it all comes down to everything, that is what our purpose is as human beings on this earth, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
And then they would just start quoting off scripture of things that we would say, this is what that's about. And so one of the scriptures maybe you know it is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then in Romans, they would have a, a section in there, Romans 11, verse 36 would say this, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. And if you wanted to keep looking, go to Psalm 73 and look at that as well. But we see, so we say, okay, so my job as a human being, as a living human being, is to give glory to God. That's great. Well, what does that even mean? And so one thing I want to say really clearly, I am not going to cover all the information the Bible covers on God's glory and what glory is, because we're talking about hundreds of verses that talk about the glory of God and who he is. But I want to give you a couple little things so you understand what it is. One is the glory of God is who he is. And, and I don't mean the attributes. I don't mean his grace and his mercy. You know, I, don't, I don't mean those things. But it's who he is. It's what uh, comes out of who he is. The, the, the Bible would talk about in Revelation 21 that we have no need for a son when we go to be with God in heaven because his glory shines like the sun. That it's, it emanates from outside of who he is. That Moses said, let me see your glory. And God's response was, no, you'll die. So it's his perfection and who he is. Everything about God that shines out from who he is. It's also what he's done in the world. Specifically, what he's done with the people of Israel. That he's shown grace. That he's shown mercy. It's what he's done in Jesus Christ. That he sent his son to die on the cross. That is the glory of God come. It's also something that we can point to. We have the ability to point glory to God, that is to recognize who he is, his greatness, his worth, his power, his perfection, him being amazing, that we can give praise and worship and honor to him, that we lift his name up above all names. And so here's what I want to do because you're like, that was not enough information, Simon. Good. I'm glad you thought so. You have a Bible. This week, what I want you to do is I want you to go through your Bible and look for verses that talk about the glory of God and glory in itself. And I want you to bring those to your life groups. And then I want you to share all that you learned about God's glory. Deal? Doesn't matter. I already said it. You have to do it. That's just how it works. So when we understand what we were created for... And when we understand that our life has a purpose, it allows us to live in a way where we can enjoy God. Now, when we flip that upside down, when we mix that up, it goes sideways really fast. When we point glory someplace else other than God, we have a problem. That's exactly where we're going to land today in the book of Acts. As we finish out uh, Acts 12, we're going to start in verse 18 and go through 25. So that's going to be our passage that we'll study, and then we'll just kind of break that down as we move through it. It says this, <clears throat> Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat 
upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give, the, uh, give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into this passage this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this section of Scripture. I thank you how you just allowed me just to kind of just dive into your glory and who you are. Lord, I ask that we think about where we point glory, that you would help us see the areas where we are... Um, inaccurate where we're pointing our glory, that you would convict our hearts as we try to maybe turn glory to ourselves at times, that you would allow us to see that, to repent of that, and to point our glory back to you, the glory of God, of the maker of the universe. Lord, if you need to convict, convict. If you need to encourage, encourage. But I ask that you would speak through me this morning to communicate your message to your people. We love you. We're grateful for this. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're kind of picking up. If this is your first time, you're like, what's going on? We're in a weird section of Scripture. Well, if you listened to last week, this makes sense. And we're kind of picking up the pieces of what happened after Peter was freed from jail. We remember that James was killed, okay? So he's killed. Peter's arrested. He goes to jail. The church prays. Peter gets released. And now we're sitting in all the turmoil that's taken place. And so Herod's like, all right, time to kill some people. And he goes down to the jail, and there's no people to kill. And then he kills some people. And so basically what ends up happening, he's like, where is he? Can't find him. He questions all the guards. And in that day and in that age, the penalty for a Roman guard who could not guard his person and got away was they would have to take on the punishment that that prisoner was facing. And so he's like, kill them all. And he has all the Roman guards killed. And then it says... He leaves and goes to Caesarea. Now, we've talked a little bit about Caesarea in some of the past sermons. We've kind of talked about what it was. And Caesarea was probably the most Roman city that existed during that time. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, it was actually named after Caesar. It was kind of like the flagship for Rome. But it also had another meaning. It was also the least Jewish city in Judea. And so you've got this very culturally affluent, culture-moving area, and then you've got Jerusalem, which loved the Lord, and yet that wasn't happening up in Caesarea. Well, why is that important? That brings me to my first point, is this, that decisions matter. <clears throat> I was told that a long time ago, and I finally believe it now. He was making his intentions clear, to be perfectly honest. Herod was done being a good Jewish king. He had had enough of the Jewish laws and the rules and the regulation trying to control this group of people that he was placed there to control. And he's like, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And by doing that, he was really showing that he was rejecting Judaism. He was fully embracing being Roman in that moment and everything that came with it. See, his decision to move away from God would have a massive impact on his life. All his decisions would show that he was moving away from God and moving towards culture, moving towards the world. Now, I, I talk with people who have gone through making some very poor choices, and they always say this, I don't know how this happened. I said, I, I do. It's really, really simple. Like, we don't wake up one day falling off a cliff like, whoa, what's happening? 
No, we take all these little steps and we make all these little decisions. We make all these little compromises and we dangle our toes off the edge and we'll put our foot out there and go, oh. and then when we slip and fall, we're like, how did that happen? That's crazy. I don't understand it. I'm like, well you're, well, you're dumb. That's why we all do that. We make all these little decisions, and all of our little decisions have consequences. I used to say this all the time. Maybe it's inappropriate. I don't know. Here we go. You don't wake up one day shooting up black tar heroin. You just, you just don't. You make choices in the things that you do and the places you go and the people that you affiliate that get you to that point. And, and that's kind of the idea. See, what we do reflects who we are and what we believe about life and God. See, we were made in the image of God, which means that we are image bearers. So everything we do reflects off of us and back out to the world saying, this is what I value. This is what I think about life. This is what I think about God. See, our choices, they have effects about everything we do, even the decisions we make, they affect our children and relatives and brothers and sisters and spouses, all those things. See, we lay a foundation for how others to live. And with kids, it's really important. Like, we can tell our kids, don't do this and don't do that. But then if you do that, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to do the same thing. They catch more than they're told. And so they're going to go, your life says this is important. Your life values this because you do these things and our children watch us and they start to model the behaviors that we do based on what we are. I mean, luckily, I don't have any guilt about any part of my raising of my kids, but maybe you might. I mean, I think about this all the time and I go, oh, they're doing this and it bothers me. And then my wife goes, didn't you do that? I'm like, I don't want to talk about that right now. That's irrelevant to the conversation. They're in trouble, not me. The people that we choose to be around, the people that we associate with, whether you understand it or not, they influence you. Have you ever wondered like why you and all your friends dress the same? You ever wonder that like we, we wear the same clothes all the time? Well, there's a reason. There's a reason why you have the same jokes and you watch the same movies and you follow the same sports because you become like, it's all subconscious. You start to fit in with who they are. You, they influence you in this way that you don't understand. And this is where it gets scary. Based on what they believe, based on what they do, they are influencing you all the time. All of those things are being dumped into you. Where you spend your time, what you spend your money on, it reflects who you are. I think about who I used to hang out with when I was in high school and, and, and college, and I went, man, I'm just making all these bad choices. And I literally had a moment where God's like, well, what do you think's going to happen? You're hanging out with people that are doing illegal things. Oh, yeah. Thanks, God. And I just said, I'm severing these friendships. And I started to surround myself with godly individuals that loved me and cared for me, that called me out, that called me to God's word. It was huge. My, my question is, do your decisions move you closer to God and show him as most important in your life? Or do they move you in the other direction and put God at a lower standing? I can't answer those questions for you, but you know what they are. 
you, you know what decisions you're making. You know the choices that you're deciding every day and the things that you're doing. Maybe you're walking towards a cliff right now and you're like, I'll never do that, I'll never do that, I'll never do that. And as you get closer, you start doing that. Maybe that's you. I'm telling you today, God wants you to hear that it's not too late. You can turn from that. For Herod, we can see these tangible steps of moving away from God, literally moving away from God, far away from him. And we're going to see where it leads him, which is my second point, is that God does not share his glory. <clears throat> the next section that we kind of jump into that kind of starts in... Um, verse 20, it's this weird little section that kind of felt out of place, and I wrestled with it this week, and I, um, some really cool things kind of came out of it. Luke's going to give us a history lesson of what's going on. So it says that Herod had this problem with these regions, Tyre and Sidon, okay? You need to understand where they are and what they do. These are port towns. So all the ships that were coming in were coming into these two towns, okay? So they were north of Caesarea, they were north of Jerusalem, and they were kind of up in this upper region of Judea, okay? So what's happening is they have all this goods coming in and out, right? The problem with the land was they didn't have the ability to actually grow anything, it wasn't an agricultural town. So if you're not an agricultural town and you need to eat, you got to figure something out, don't you? And so what happened was Tyre and Sidon were heavily dependent on the king to give them the food that they needed. And I would imagine because of their port work that they would trade, you know, hey, we'll trade goods and service for that we can get food and we can eat. Now, if you've been following along and have paid attention there was a famine that was taking place during that time. It was a couple, about a chapter ago, so that there was a great famine that went across the land. And so now, not only are you trying to barter for food, now there's a famine. So now there's a shortage of food, so now getting food is really hard. And it says that these, these areas were at odds with Herod during this time. So what do they do? They go into town, they say, hey, Herod's in town, we're going to go meet with one of his guys. This guy, Blasus, uh, he would have been like the prime minister or like the secretary of state. Really powerful individual. And all he's saying is like, we want peace. We don't want to fight. We just want to eat. We're in need and we need help. And Herod's response is like, I don't care. That's kind of the response he's giving because he's not giving them what they need. Which is really interesting, right? Because the church is dealing with the same thing and they have a very different response. The church actually sends out Barnabas and Saul to go to all the areas where the church is at to take care of them, to give relief, to make sure that they had food and money. So, they get it. so you see these, this contrast, and, and Luke is really good at painting contrast, and we'll see a bunch of it by the end. He's saying, this is how the church responds to those that are in need, that they serve and love and care and support, and this is how the world does. It's about me getting mine. Now, it's also important because it shows us another thing. And you may not notice it, but what this does is this bit of information, it locks this story into history. A time and a place and a people with kings and real names, with a, a global famine that took place that was going over. So what does that tell us? It tells us the Bible is historically accurate. Because this is not the only place that this stuff is recorded. And we see that there is more that people talking about what's happening. So now what we have is that we can trust the validity of the Bible. The Bible is saying, this thing happened, and where it feels like an offshoot, it just goes and says, yeah, it happened. And other people know it happened. And so what we're saying is true. It's not Mount Olympus. 
It's not Zeus and lightning bolts and all this weird mythology in the depths of Hades where he goes and collects. That's not what it is. This is a real place, a real time, real events that are taking place. Let me tell you this. You can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. It, we know that it, it's true. And so what ends up happening is Herod comes to this town. He's going to throw a week-long party to honor Caesar. He's going to show his allegiance to him. He's going to show that he is putting Rome on a high pedestal, and it's going to be all things Rome. So he starts inviting all these important people to this event. All the game changers, all the power players, all the people with money, all the influencers, all the decision makers, they're all there. This is the, the who's who of that day in that city that had a lot of influence over all the other regions. Now, this event, and I kind of alluded to it, this isn't the only place we read about this. It's not just the Bible that talks about this. There's a historian that we know called Josephus. Maybe you have heard of who he is, but he wrote a book called Antiquities of the Jews, okay? And in chapter, and he actually kind of like has it set like the Bible. It's not the Bible. Don't, don't mishear me. In uh, chapter 19, verses uh, 343 through 350, he actually talks about this very event and what was going on. And he gives us more detail and kind of fleshes out what's happening with Herod and his party and what's going on. So it tells us that as he is preparing for this party on the second day, it would say that he had this robe made for him that was just amazing. It was beautiful. It was beyond anything you could possibly imagine. Now, more specifically, it says the robe was entirely made of silver. Okay, so he says, really amazing silver, red carpet, kind of one-of-a-kind robes, and he sits in his throne, and the, and the robe's all out, and it's over him, and it's kind of in this area. Now, he's a smart guy, and he waits until sunrise to start coming up, and he has this oration. He's going to say, I'm going to talk to the people, and when the sun comes up, it hits him, and he starts to shimmer and glow like a disco ball. And, and it's saying that uh, Josephus' recording says, it was so bright that it was hard for people to even look upon him. So he's shining, he's glowing, it's kind of like heavenly and angelic, and the people then start saying, not the voice of man, but the voice of a god. And they start to worship and honor this man as a god. Now, it's, it's pretty crazy because it reminds me of another story that we just read about. Remember Peter and Cornelius? We just talked about that a couple weeks ago. And that uh, Cornelius gets these visions, and he says, go send for this guy Peter, and he's going to bring him, and so he does that. Peter gets a vision, he shows up, and what's the first thing that Cornelius does when Peter walks into his house? He falls down at his feet, he bows down to worship him, and then Peter's like, what's Peter say? Whoa, 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 knock it off, man, don't do that, don't do that. He's like, I am a man just like you, I am, I am nothing. Again, do you see the contrast and how Peter responds. Because here's the thing. Herod doesn't go, no, no. He's like, oh, stop, stop, please, stop. <laughs> he loves it. He's accepting it. He's embracing it in that moment. He's not rejecting that. He likes it. Here's the thing. You're like, oh, Herod seems horrible. We've been doing this for since humans first hit hit the world. What did Adam and Eve want to do? 
we eat of the fruit, we'll be like God himself. Oh, you want to be like God. You want to be in control. You want to call the shots. You want the honor and the glory and the worship. Tower of Babel. They all get together. What do they say? Let's make a tower so tall that it reaches the heavens so that we can be equal with God, so we can have a, na- a great name for ourselves. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He's the, uh, the donkey man who eats grass. He's a cool guy. He goes out. He's like, hey, look at all these things that I've done. I've done all this stuff. I'm so amazing. I'm so great. And God's like, uh-uh. And in Daniel 4.30, we see that he turns him into a guy. He's like, no, you're not going to take my glory. All the pharaohs believe themselves to be gods and deities. The Caesars all believe the exact same thing, that we are gods here to walk on earth that deserve your worship and your honor and your glory. You're like, well, Simon, I don't do that. I don't don't think I'm God. I don't act like my God. I don't want to be worshipped by other people. And I'd say, well, really? Let me give you two words. Made in America. Just kidding. Um, If you get the joke, you get the joke. Social media. We don't want to be praised. We don't want to be affirmed. We don't want to be looked on as great and amazing and wonderful. We don't want the praise of other people. I want these likes. I need these hearts. I need these posts. I need these retweets. Oh, I need it. I need it. I need to know that you care about the sandwich that I posted on Facebook and it was a really good meal. I need to know that it's okay what I did. Look at I did this, this, this thing that you need to praise me for. I did this thing, like I'm really great, I'm really nice, right, right? We are exactly the same. But here's the thing, we're looking for worth and value. We're just looking in the wrong place for it. We're looking to the wrong thing, and we're looking for human beings, frail, weak, and temporal, broken and full of sin to give us worth and value. See, God doesn't share his glory. And you're like, that seems really arrogant of God. God seems kind of like, like a little narcissistic. Like, that's weird. And you'd be right if he was a regular old human. But he's not. He, he's not a human. He's God. See, he's not broken by sin. He's not failed in any way. He's perfect, he's holy, he's just, he's all-knowing, he's all-present, he's all-powerful. He doesn't make mistakes. See, he deserves worship and honor and glory because he's perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. To, To point our glory towards anything else is a lesser thing. And God cares about glory so much that he won't let us actually worship a lesser thing. He's like, no, this is not good for you. It's bad for you. You worshiping this actually doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't bring you the joy that you want. In Isaiah, Isaiah 43, in verse 7, it says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, is for my glory, whom I formed and made. In uh, Isaiah 42, 8, it would say, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And we could go on to other passages there as well, but I'm not going to do that. But what we see is that in this moment, God is not sharing his glory, and Herod is trying to take it, and we're about to see what happens. Because here's the thing, we can be just like Herod all the time. 
We want that praise. We want that accolade. We want to know that we have worth and value. And by the way, that's not wrong. It's where we're looking for it becomes wrong. Do you, somewhere in your heart, want the praise of others? Is there there something that makes you crave the accolades of others? Where are you looking for your worth and value? Because here's the thing. If it's not rooted in something eternal, then it has an ending. And that's exactly what we see. So my third point is the crowd is not always right. It's super easy to get swept up in what everyone's saying, what everyone's doing. it's, It's... it's not hard to hear something a bunch of go, I don't like that, I disagree with that. And then the more you hear it, you maybe don't fight as much or your voice quiets down. And then you're just like, I just don't like that. I'm not going to say anything though. And then you're like, ah, it's just irritating at this point now. And then you're like, well, maybe I'm tolerating it. And then maybe it flows into like, well, I'm indifferent to it. And then all of a sudden you start finding yourself promoting that very thing that you didn't like. We follow the crowd all the time. The crowd has a loud voice and it is constantly yelling at us what is good, right, and perfect by the world's standards. If all you take in is what the world says is good, right, and perfect, you will then say the same thing ultimately. It just takes time. The only way to fight that tide of the world is with the truth of God. See, the world's fickle. It's always changing what it values and what it doesn't value. Go back 10 years and see what we were voting on. Go back 20 years and see what we were voting on. Look at what the world's doing. The world is moving. The world is changing. And it changes what it values. What it once said was wrong and deplorable. Now it is lifting up on a podium and saying, this is great and amazing. Just watch the news. Read a paper. I've been talking with guys all week. I have all these buddies from all over the U.S., and it's just interesting to me that we keep having these same talks. And so, like, you think, well, that's the world, Simon. No. The things that I'm talking about now are happening in the church. The church is compromising on biblical doctrine. It's compromising what God would say. This is how you should live. This is what's good. This is what's wrong. And saying, well, I don't know if I believe that anymore. I think maybe it's this. Churches are drifting from solid doctrine and they're starting to say things that God is like super clear on. It's not some random verse out of the blue. This is like main doctrine, like full chapters on how we should live and what we should do. And yet as a church, what we start doing is, well, the world says this and I don't, I don't want to hurt their feelings and I want to be kind and loving. And we just start to believe that that's okay. And churches are just, they're just, it's out of control. They will not submit to God. See, here's the thing. If we don't know what God's word says against something, how can we speak out and even know when something's not true? How can we know it's a lie if we don't understand what God's word says? If we're not reading God's word and washing ourselves over and over and over again with the truth of God, we'll never be able to catch it when it comes because the enemy is subtle with his words and crafty with how he lies and he tweaks and he manipulates and he makes little adjustments here and there until you're in a spot you could have never believed you were ever in. Scripture is what we should listen to, not the loudest voice in the room. See, if God calls something wrong... It's wrong. Regardless of how you feel about it. Because he's God and you aren't. If God calls something good, 
then it's good. Hello? There we go. Nothing like slowing down the momentum. Here's the thing. The reason that God gets to decide is because God is perfect. That's why he gets to decide. He sees everything in all ways, all the time. He is not lacking in information. He always makes the perfect decision. I was really encouraged by someone this week. I got a phone call, and I'm going to keep it vague because that's the right way to do it. I got a phone call from someone this week, and they called me up, and they said, I'm at this job, and my, my company's starting to make these decisions, and it affects me. It's causing me to have to doubt and compromise what I'm going to do and how I should act and what I should believe in this area. And this person called me, and she just said, am I crazy? I'm like, no, you're not crazy. You're valuing what God's word says. You're holding strong. And I said, here's my advice. Know the decision you're going to make before it happens so you can stand firm on God's word and know what to do. And I was so impressed with this woman. I was so impressed that she was willing to stand up to what she believed in, even if it cost her her job. No matter what, she was willing to do that. That is an amazing, beautiful thing, and we need more of that in our lives right now. Did I do it? <laughs> Skills. <clears throat> In this case, we see that the crowd believes Herod is some kind of God, and there are things that I want to ask you today. Are, are there things that you're doing in your life right now that you know that God has called wrong, bad, evil, and sin that you are making room for that you are calling good? Because here's the thing, if you're hearing that and you're just super frustrated with me right now, that probably means that the Holy Spirit's convicting your heart because what you're doing is you've been trying to lie about what God's word says. And he doesn't want you to because he doesn't want you to worship something that's false. He doesn't want you to believe something that's a lie. He wants you to have freedom, not be a slave to sin. Judgment will come. That's my fourth point. That's a fun one. In Romans 14, 12, <clears throat> It says this, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. We are all going to stand before God at some point and give an account for our life and what we lived and what we did and how we did it. We will either represent ourselves or we can be represented by somebody else. If God's standard to be with him and to be in his presence because he's perfect and holy is sinless perfection then you truly need to ask a question to yourself. Am I perfect? 100% without sin. And I always say that, and someone always laughs and goes, I am. And then we all go, ha, 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 ha. I've never, ever had someone come to me seriously and say, I am. I have lived a 100% perfect life without sin. I've never met that person. You know why? Because we're not I'm not, you're not, none of us are. 
We've all been affected by sin and what it's done. We've all sat under that weight of, I didn't do something right. I didn't trust God. I didn't listen to God. I didn't follow God. And, and here's the thing. Since we're sitting in that boat and we don't meet that standard, that qualification of 100% perfection, then we need someone who has. We need someone to represent us. We need to put our life in the life of somebody else who has done that, and that's Jesus. He came and lived the life that you could not live, that meaning he came and lived a life that glorified God in every single decision. He honored God every decision, every thought, every word, everything that he did. He lived that life that we were called to that we couldn't meet. He, we weren't able to. He then becomes the substitution, meaning he takes our place to represent us where we deserve punishment and wrath for our lives. He said, I'll take that. And he went to the cross and he died in your place. And he tells us this. I am the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot come to God if our sin has not been forgiven and paid for in full. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And he offers that to anyone who would call on his name. They could be saved. Your sins can be forgiven. All that guilt, all that shame, all that remorse, all that regret that you feel, all those decisions that you've made in your life that you struggle with and you wrestle through, those have been forgiven. Jesus died for those. He sees you as a saint and as righteousness at this point because of that. It's the work of the cross that provides that. And not only that, we have an assurance of our faith that, that his work on the cross was completed. It says it is finished. We don't have to worry anymore. We are saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. In Romans 10, 9 through 13, <clears throat> it says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him." For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't know where you come from. I don't know your background, and I don't know where you are. But I do know this, that if you call on the name of the Lord today and you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, he will forgive your sins and welcome you in as a child of God. That is what I know. And you're like, I don't know what that means, Simon. It is as easy as confessing your sin, saying, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. You are my Lord, and I want to follow you with my whole life. There we go. You could pray that prayer. I would talk to me. Meet me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about that. So what we see in this moment is that Herod receives the judgment from God that all of us will have to stand before at some point. He is struck down, he dies, and he becomes worm food. His pursuit of his own glory died. The last point is this, is God's word will not be stopped. I remember as a kid making sand castles on the beach, and it was always the bummer part of the day when the tide came in, <laughs> and all of your hard work and all of your labor, you're building moats and trenches and walls, like, this will stop the waves. It never does, and it just sweeps away, and Trying to stop the word of God moving forward is like trying to stop the waves of the ocean. It is futile. 
It's a pointless endeavor that will not last. No matter how much people or the enemy tries to stop the word of God from going forward, they will always fail and God will always prosper. Just think about the contrast of how chapter 12 started. James was killed, Peter's in jail, and the church is being persecuted. How does chapter 12 end? Herod is dead, Peter's free, and the word is spreading. Don't you love the contrast of what the world does and what God does? There's no stopping it. Like Luke's not, oh, how did that happen? He knows exactly what happened. And in verse 24 of our main passage, it says this. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Not only could they not stop it, not only could they slow it, they couldn't even slow it down. It, it moved forward and it grew and it multiplied. God is moving forward and he's doing what he's going to do. There's this contrast that we need to understand as well is that Herod is seen as frail and weak because he is only human, and Herod is passing. But God is seen as eternal and powerful, and God is endless. Who do you think deserves glory? Out of those two, it's not hard. Man trying to give himself glory will always end in the same way. Because if you want to seek your own glory, you will be judged by your own glory. And if you place your hope in the glory of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the power of God, then you will be saved. It ends with this, that the mission keeps moving forward in verse 25. See, this passage meant to give us great encouragement. Our God cannot be stopped. His plan will not fail. Though the world seems to be winning and evil looks like it has the upper hand. Does that sound like anything that we maybe read in the news today? You ever feel like, God, the enemy's winning. No, he's not. He never is. He never has the upper hand. He's never making progress like you think because God is stronger and more powerful than him. Those who oppose God will lose those that cling to God and his glory will live forever. I want to end with this before we pray. And the band's going to start to stage up here. What does that look like? What does it mean to glorify God? Here's a couple quick things you can think about. What's it mean to glorify God? To follow him. To trust him. To submit to him. To praise him. To point others to him and to rest in him. My question today is this. Where are you pointing your glory? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time that we could come and we could open your word. Lord, I know as I've been going through it this week, you've just convicted my heart and you've opened my eyes to so many things. And Lord, we want you to receive all the glory and all the honor. You are worthy of all praise. Lord, I ask that we move forward, that we would realize that for those that have placed their hope in you, you win. This is just a blip on the screen of eternity and that you are going to have your day. You are going to do what you always said you were going to do and we will stand before you as it says in Revelation 21. We will stand in your glory. We will have no need for a sun because your glory is enough light to shine everywhere. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.